stem stem culture. culture. Oh, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have an intro. Yeah, it's really warm in here. Welcome to STEM Culture Podcast with your hosts, Brooke and Will. Today we're talking with Dr. Brian Chad Starks. Dr. Starks is a criminologist who received his Ph.D. from the University of Delaware in 2002. He's currently an associate director of the NASA Delaware Space Grant Consortium, where he works to improve the representation of minority students in STEM. Dr. Starks is the founder and CEO of BCS and Associates Consulting Firm, which has a social justice focus. Dr. Starks has received awards from the University of Delaware and the NAACP for his work to enhance STEM diversity. In this episode, we will discuss his life and education, how his perspective on STEM has evolved over the years, and what he's doing today. This episode goes out to all the people who want to see diversity and inclusion in STEM. Yeah, good things. All good things. So, Will, um, you've known Dr. Starks for a while now, haven't you? Yes. Uh, you will hear me refer to him as Chad. Uh, we met in a very informal setting. We actually met uh, playing basketball at University of Delaware um, in, from like 2008 to 2012, probably. Uh, and uh, for me, that was uh, that was a really uh, great experience because... Um, you know, if you've never been around a university, you might not know that, uh, um, you know, there are a lot of people that play basketball. And uh, so little communities sort of form. And um, I was lucky enough to meet a whole group of really interesting guys that I probably wouldn't have met otherwise. Um, and Chad was um, a charismatic and vocal leader of that community you know he sort of um set the tone for a lot of the younger guys uh in terms of sportsmanship and you know uh respect for some of the older dudes that would play with us which uh you know um there was a guy who was a emeritus math professor who was in his mid-70s who played uh regularly uh, you know, probably about once a week with us. Uh, so it was a really diverse, really interesting group of people. Um, and I didn't know when I first met Chad that he was a PhD student, but, uh, you know, um, eventually we became close enough friends that I, I learned about his work. Um, and so having made that connection now, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to, to call in the air force here and, and, um, you know, have a really, uh, uh, talented guest on our podcast. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I am excited to hear from Chad. Yeah. So uh, that interview is coming up and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, Dr. Brian Chad Starks. I'm accustomed to just calling you Chad. Is that all right with you? That's fine. Now? That's fine. Uh, also with us today is my co host, Brooke. Hello. So, Chad, I wonder if you would tell us. Uh, in your life before you got involved in STEM, what was your feeling about STEM and why? Uh, and specifically, what kinds of experiences led you to that impression of the STEM fields? Well, this is uh, this is interesting. When I was thinking about 
this this opportunity I had to trace my intrigue all the way back to being a a lad in Columbia, South Carolina. And um even though it's, you know, we lovely refer to my city as the metro. It's not a large metropolitan area, but you know, the concrete jungle as we call it. Um I spent some time in um playing in the woods a lot. <laughs> which was interesting, um, collecting rocks, um, you know, the whole ladybugs, digging in dirt, um, selling bottles for, for $5, you know, collecting bottles and selling them back and um, creating a little club and going into the to the trails and hiding our membership money. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but um, I had this, this, intrigue and in, in, in rocks and plants and dirt and um, that was kind of like the entry I got to my intrigue for STEM um, but as I traveled through high school and was fortunate to take some I guess advanced courses I um, my teachers were my teachers were very supportive about my ability I guess to be a little bit intelligent and I didn't recognize it then but um, I had taken enough high school credits to where I didn't need to take that many courses as a senior. And I stopped after my chemistry, and after chemistry my junior year. And I really stopped applying myself with STEM. But I went to Wofford College in 1990 to be a computer science major. <laughs> and Will, I know you don't even know that story, but uh, interestingly yeah. enough, no, I, I never heard about this chapter at all. Yeah, interestingly enough, um, <laughs> I got my first F at Wofford College in uh, calculus, and that, of course, uh, changed the whole trajectory. I didn't. Um, I lost the confidence. Um, of course, I think it had a great deal of just being a freshman in a new environment, being away from home. Um, there was some exclusiveness that happened um, for me that, you know, I can relate to as probably being an African-American uh, student athlete at that time and not really being comfortable um, entering into certain faculty members' office to talk about homework that I didn't understand. Um, I really want to prove that I wasn't a quote-unquote, you know, dumb jock. And I kind of tried to do it on my own and didn't ask for any help, even though tutors were available at Wofford. I will admit that um, I didn't reach out to get any help. So I failed the calculus course that year, um, took it over in, in summer and got a B to get that great replacement, make sure I could play some football, right, eligibility-wise. Um, but I had made a decision after that, after that uh, failure in math that maybe that, you know, Maybe computer science wasn't for me. And um, that was where I left it. Um, I even took chemistry uh, my freshman year instead of taking a, the general ed astronomy that the rest of my teammates were taking. I took the chemistry course because, you know, I was smart in high school. Um, and I got a D in that course. Um, so this was the first time I probably... Had a, I know it was the first time I failed the course, and I know it was the first time I had an F and D, and that was my first semester. So I think that introduction um, to STEM started as a kid, and I kind of got off track when I um, when it got tough, and when I didn't get the affirmation from grades that I that I belong, and 
didn't really have anyone to say, hey, this happens to a lot of freshmen and here's some tools or some tactics to to take in that, you know, you can keep fighting for it. So I switched to sociology. That uh, I had never heard that story before. And that's, I mean, do you, do you think that you were the only person that, that was in that kind of a position that, that came in as a student athlete and uh, sort of got confronted by, you know, uh, this new environment and, and initially didn't fare so well and then didn't have anybody to say, you know, don't, don't be so hard on yourself right away? Um, no, um, it, was a, it, it was a couple of my uh, teammates as well as some basketball players that faced some of the same challenges. Um, I don't know if I said, but I attended Wofford College, and Wofford had a 3-2 computer science program um, that had, I guess Wofford was like the sister school to Georgia Tech. Um, and Will, as you know me, I'm, I'm you know, I dream big. <laughs> I dream big, and, um, you know, getting to Wofford was an opportunity to continue my education um, by financial means of playing football, but um, I expected to go there for three years and finish my last two years in Atlanta, Georgia, at Georgia Tech, um, earning a computer science degree. And um, I didn't know how to, uh, I really didn't know how to reach out and say I needed some help. Um, I had been cultivated as a, as a, as a youngin, I would say, to, you know, you go out there and you got to make things happen on your own. Um, so me and my, some of my teammates used to sit in the room. Um, my roommate, who's a who's a attorney now, um, used to used to wake up in the middle of the night, claiming to have nightmares about his biology professor. Um, so <laughs> it was it was like a campus thing that you know Wofford was very hard. You know, like I took my first multiple choice exam in graduate school. <laughs> I fear blue okay, books. Wow. Yeah, I fear blue books now as I <laughs> as I walk <laughs> the past them. Blue books. Yes, even in the bookstore. But um, I do think there were right. some structural components that that we lacked. I do think there was a lack of cultural competency for us um, at Wofford, and um, you know, just some of those things where you know I don't think we were up to par in um, in those lanes. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? That the the uh, the the structure that Wofford had in place to support student athletes or or, or, or black student athletes wasn't good enough. Um, definitely, uh, black student athletes. Um, you know, uh, there was no faces. You know, there were no mm. there were no cultural uh, bonds being um, established um, outside of the uh, coaches. Um, and in the city of Spartanburg, you know, we would often uh, walk through the mall because I was fortunate enough to go to college with some local kids from Spartanburg. And we were where they would take us to the mall just to get exposure in the city. And a lot of I can I never forget this uh, older um, African-American female, this black lady walked up and she was like, mm, they still using y'all babies to play football over there, huh? And I was like, what? Like, what? Hey, I'm smart. They told me I was smart. What are you talking about? Like, I deserve to get to be over here. Um, so, of course, that brought some intrigue and some questions. I mean, I knew it was a predominantly white institution. Uh, but when you're sitting in that classroom and, you know, you're taking those 16, 17 hours and you don't see any familiar faces standing in front of you giving instruction. Um, and if you don't know that you're supposed to go to Alpha's hours 
and uh, introduce yourself and debunk stereotypes that attach to your racial identity as well as your athletic and scholastic identity, um, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So you figure out ways to cope and usually um, you cope with those that are going through the same situations, which, um, you know, struggle love is real, but they don't have any more insight <laughs> about about <Right>. navigating <laughs> navigating the space either. Um, so, right. yeah. um, you know, we, we built great bonds and we all have great relationships today. And it's, you know, decently comical because we made it through um, in four years. But um, that started the impetus to really start saying, hey, there must be some different conversations to have a more inclusive environment. So, yeah. 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 I think, I think there's a, a, a big conversation that needs to be had here about how people get to college and what the emphasis is once they get there. Because I think most people would agree that starting out uh, a computer science program uh, as a freshman in college is a pretty pretty overwhelming experience by itself, much less trying to do that and be a collegiate athlete at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, the demands that you have, it's not just your classes, it's what the coaches demands are as well. Definitely. Yeah. And I can only imagine. So we're wondering how you ended up pursuing a STEM PhD, um, when you moved over to sociology. Um, a STEM PhD? Yes. Oh, I don't have a STEM PhD. My PhD is in criminolo- okay. criminology. Okay, okay. Isn't that a social science? Yeah, it's a social science. And the STEM world doesn't acknowledge the social sciences yet. I'm fighting for that conversations. There's a divide between well, the hard sciences and what we call the soft sciences. So um, that's something that is always... So, uh, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I had my degree is in anthropology, and um, I would have to side with you on that. The amount of science I did to get my degree was just as much as a biology student, um, and yet it's considered a soft science. Exactly. Um, But you're you're working with large data sets, um, so you know, and and taking a lot of the same classes. Right, and I meant. We're doing quality research. I'm fortunate enough to go to University of Delaware. I mean, I'm being trained by some of the best in my field, um, theoretical frameworks. Um, I'm not really sure why we keep, you know, well, I am sure, you know, we categorize everything in this country. So we have, we have to use measures to separate even ourselves from each other so we can create a hierarchy. Um, it's something right. that I learned in, in my doctorate studies about you know, where the value is, we most often invest. And um, the STEM folks are usually called the the real and the hard sciences where, you know, amazing enough where we're dealing with human behavior and people is <laughs> actually called the soft sciences. So, um, right. yeah, Brooke, hoo-hoo for us, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I've managed to stumble into another philosophical question that we maybe don't want to get into, but for what it's worth, I think that, uh, that the thing that makes something science is, is, is the way you do it, not the subject. Right. So if the you approach. are using 
a systematic systematic methodology and controlling for error and using statistics to draw inference about things, uh, you know, and and doing surveys. I mean, I I uh, probably don't know enough about criminology to um to to speak in detail about the the methods that y'all use but i i uh, my base assumption is that it's as every bit as much a science as certainly biology is and um you know uh the only thing that that that's notably different in its essence is that the stuff that y'all study is more complicated yeah um um, it, it's probably worth noting also that, I mean, uh, I think a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, biology was considered a soft science. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think hopefully things like people's attitudes are going to be changing about that. Well, what, what pushed you to continue on your, your studies into a PhD or a graduate uh, program? Uh, being a bail bondsman. Okay. <laughs> That's, that, that sounds like another story. Yeah. Um, I'm intrigued. Mass incarceration. I became a bail bondsman in 1999 after earning a master's degree in criminal justice and a master's certificate in alcohol and drug studies. And wow. the war on drugs was, you know, my life, my family, my community, um, my race, ethnicity, it was, it was everywhere. And uncles and uncles and cousins and friends, um, due to structure inequality, had made decisions to participate in an economic system that was illegal. Um, so I wanted to open the floodgates, and the floodgates being jails. And I became a bail bondsman, and it took me maybe seven minutes to write my name on a legal document to get someone out of jail. And I enjoyed that power. I enjoyed that privilege. And I was going to save my family, my community, my race, and the world um, by being a bail bondsman. And, uh, Will, this is a part of my story. (laughs) So I would give you a part of it for my book. Um, But, you know, thankfully... And being a uh, a scholar and an activist, as well as a business owner, um, I had the epiphany of my role in a system of oppression against um, poor minority and most often male people at that time, that I was taking advantage of the most vulnerable people at the most vulnerable time. And I was a part of a system that was financially profiting um, from injustice, um, from arrest all the way to adjudication. And I decided that um, that's not what I was supposed to be doing. So after six and a half years, I decided to close my company and become a part of the conversation. And I wanted to be in the room with the people that were making the decisions about this criminal justice phase. And I found a program at the University of Delaware that was going to give me the best training to theoretically understand why systems like this exist and how to address those issues. So I left, closed my business in June of 2006, and I started the PhD program in criminology at the University of Delaware that late August. Um, And I came in 
to understand how stories have been written about my community, my family. And I even wrote my dissertation entitled A Bell of Two Cities, um, doing a comparative analysis of Atlanta and Philadelphia's bell systems um, as an ethnographer. So I did a mixed methods approach, again, back to that science word. I had to show the world that I could do statistics and quantitative analysis but um, I also know the stories and the value of being in the room with people that are going through this system and the consequences of continuously, continuously um, being mistreated um, by legislation and decision makers and courtroom personnel. Um, so I want to capture those stories as well. Um, so that's what I wrote my dissertation on, and that's why I went to get a Ph.D. That's uh, it sounds like a better reason than a lot of us have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. went to, I just went to go get my PhD because I like learning stuff. <laughs> uh, so much, much, much less uh, socially conscious or admirable, in my opinion. Um, so when when you got there um, at University of Delaware in the criminology PhD program, what was your experience like? Uh, $10,373 out of my pocket. Yeah. Um, standardized exams, no juice, baby. Didn't do well on the GRE. Um, but here's where, you know, that, uh, that system of oppression afforded me some opportunities and my family. Um, you know, I'm a father, so my daughter was able to have a different childhood and different lifestyle and livelihood than I, than I, which we all want, right? Um, but I was, I had to pay for my first semester. Um, it's another story about, you know, how I came up to Delaware and how I got into the program. Um, I paid for a visit to come up myself and, and sat with about 13 faculty members to, um, to put my face and my identity in front of them so they would know that I was serious about being a PhD student. And, um, fortunate enough, they gave me a chance and, um, I paid for that first semester with hopes and um, I can say a little bit of confidence if that's okay to say <laughs> that uh, yeah. that I was going to get offered an opportunity to be a research assistant at the Center for Alcohol and Drug Studies or a TA but I really wanted to learn how to do research and by the third week uh, into that semester um, I got an opportunity and was informed probably two weeks later that I would be given a, a research assistant position at the center, CDAS as we call it, at the Center for Drug and Alcohol Studies. Um, and it was great. I mean, you know, I came in and I was about to work, you know, um, much smaller apartment because my lifestyle changed and uh, no cable. Um, well, as you know, I'm a sports connoisseur, I like to call myself. And um, I used to reward myself to go watch college football at, um, on Saturdays and Sundays, if I did all my readings and my work by Saturday morning at eleven thirty, um, so it, it was that first year was was about keeping my head down <clears throat> and showing respect for a new environment. You know, um, assumptions can get us all into trouble. And I came in to build relationships. I'm a relationship type person. Um, I'm gonna give everyone a shot. I'm hoping that you give me one. And I built a number of uh, substantive uh, relationships to, to create a good foundation for me in that first year. Um, so my first year was good. I got a lot of love from my faculty, a lot of love from the community in Delaware. Um, and being a research assistant um, gave me 
um, tons of opportunities to to be in spaces where I had intrigue from the community to prisons to um, working with professors that had a, a different perspective other than just, you know, learning the theory. Um, we wanted to do some more applied stuff at the center, so it was good early on. <clears throat> Did it maintain that way throughout um, your PhD? Oh, Brooke. Oh, Brooke. <laughs> um, no. Um, I'm a critical criminologist, which means that uh, I study systems. Um, and as time goes on, you know, you can start seeing where there's some gaps in the uh, yeah. substantive relationships and, and the system will force one's hand uh, to choose sides. Um, so, of course, you know, there were some, some challenges. Um, I'm going to challenge. And um, there were some conversations that needed to be had. Um, most often they were they were appreciated, um, respected, and responded to. And, um, you know, there were some relationships that were lost um, because of those challenges. Um, but, you know, when you train me, um, you know, as... Uh, <laughs> Um, as we say, you know, I'm not going to be a student forever. Um, at least we mm-hmm. hope not. And uh, so I just took the right. training that I got and I, you know, became much more. I was always conscious. I've been conscious for a while. But you add that to that formal uh, doctoral training with critical thinking and research skills and being able to analyze information and data. Um, I began to challenge and do some pushback in some of those spaces. So, yeah. I mean, the disproportionate representation was the huge thing. I can go ahead and say it. And um, mm-hmm. a lot of the faculty members, and I mean good-hearted people, um, just with, you know, sometimes uh, being white in academia doesn't allow you to see what you don't see. And when you right. don't see uh, people of color um, in your faculty members, you just assume that this should be the norm and can't understand right. the value of why um any race or ethnicity struggles from only having one perspective to look through the lens of what crime and what criminology is. And I brought that to the forefront. I'm saying, you know, we need to have um, more people of color talking about the issues that we're writing and talking about, especially when a majority of those people are people of color that are being incarcerated. And everyone will benefit if we can get some of those perspectives. Um, We are going to do research differently when it comes to some of the same topics. And I said, I I, I thought we're building toolboxes here, right? Like the more access to information and resources would make me a better candidate on the job market, but it's going to make me a better scholar. And I'm going to carry your name, your confirmation bias identity of being a PhD from the University of Delaware. Um, So don't limit my exposure as well as my colleagues. Right. So did they so you said that the that those challenges to the sort of way things were uh, in the culture of your department were met with a mixed reception. Um, have you seen any change in uh, in the, the representation in, in that department since your time there? You know, I didn't uh, leave no stone unturned, Will, while I was there. So um, me and two of the faculty members, um, there was a 
incident about a, a black faculty member, actually the top ethnographer in the country was coming in um, and I was invited to a lunch and I questioned why was I being invited because he was black and I made the statement that there have been white faculty members coming to campus and no one has invited me to go to lunch. And mm-hmm. of course that, you know, here's that critical thinking, right? It's like, oh no, it's not that. And then I said, okay, if it's not that, then um, have all the people of color been invited to go to lunch or dinner to meet with them? And I said, I will go if they get an invitation and we get mm-hmm. 20 minutes to sit with him by ourselves. And that was rejected. Um, and the quote was, uh, I don't want to separate the department. And uh, this gentleman is a colleague. Um, and I, ch- I challenged him a great deal there. I have the utmost respect for him and his research and his work. And I told him to look down the hallway. The department is already separated. And he said, mm. So he wrote the chair a letter. I'm in an email and included me about our conversation and she called me and she said, Brian, do you want my car, my credit card, my office? This is a great idea. So we Mm. took advantage of that and that uh, person and I, he became a mentor uh, for me. I ended up being invited to his campus uh, to give a presentation on my dissertation work. Um, and we're talking about an Ivy League institution uh, for a kid that was in the woods at one point, you know, digging up rocks and bearing three and four dollars uh, and not knowing what direction life was going to take him. Um, but we also, uh, me and two colleagues who um, I greatly appreciate, uh, we decided that we were going to work together. And I made the uh, I made the leap and said we need to get more on campus. So. I started what's called now the Minority Mentor Lecture Series. And it is a lecture series that brings in people of color to present their work, either sociologists or criminologists, um, so that everyone can have exposure to them. But it also is an opportunity for minority students to spend some downtime, go to dinner with them to be able to ask some of the questions that uh, the white faculty can't ask about what is it going to be like on the job market for me? How much does race play into that? Will I have access to national data sets to be able to further my career, to get tenure, to become a full professor? How does funding work? Do I need to go to six conferences? What about my presentations? Have you been able to get any grants? Do you think race has anything to do with any of this? Um, there's a reason why this disproportionate representat- representation is not because uh, people of color lack the ability to graduate in doctoral programs. Um, so that is a program. You can look it up. They use it. It's on their website. Um, they still are inviting um, these faculty members in. And what we did was we wanted to make sure that these faculties of color um, got treated great as well, right? Because they have gone through some tough times and getting into that space. And everyone isn't comfortable calling this stuff out. I can remember the first person uh, the first faculty that we brought in, she pulled me to the side and she said, um, Brian, um, who are you? <laughs> and I'm from South Carolina. And I was like, ma'am. She was like, don't ma'am me. She was like, first of all, there aren't many programs that are doing stuff like this. And she said, but baby, you're a graduate student. 
you're not supposed to be speaking out against racial injustice as a graduate student. And here's where being naive um, comes in handy. I didn't know I was mm-hmm. supposed to be quiet. I didn't know I was supposed to take hush money. Um, as Dr. King right. says, right, eventually silence is betrayal. Um, so I didn't know any better. <laughs> and I believe that um, I had some good-hearted and some good-willed um, faculty members that, that maybe just hadn't thought about it the way I thought about it. So I'm thinking that if there's an opportunity for me to show uh, that I got some weight to toss around in this academia conversation as well. Have you thought about this mm-hmm. great idea? Um, so we got some funding. And uh, we take them to the best restaurants, and we put them up in the nicest hotel. We offer an honorarium, and we also offer a uh, session the following morning. Uh, they come and give a, a, a department-wide talk, but we also invite the graduate students to come to a research focus um, session, right? Again, we don't want to marginalize any student that could build a relationship with a scholar that could give them an opportunity, Right. So the white students get to come, black students, Hispanic, all all graduate students that have the same research interests. You come the next morning, you sit, you talk, you build relationships. And then the remainder of the day for lunch um, is where the minority students used to go and uh, get some of that social time to be able to say, hey, kick back and, you know, kind of build a relationship. Yeah, I think uh, I think I, I really identify with that. You said you're a, a relationship person, and um, I'm. I feel very much the same way, and it's hard for me to imagine uh, what it would be like to uh, to start a program where uh, everybody was visibly different than me in some way, um, or culturally different than me in some way. Um, yeah, so I, I I I think I can the way you're describing it, at least start to understand uh, what that might be like. Um, but it's certainly, I think, useful for people to hear that. Could you tell me again, tell us again, what the name of that, the program you were just talking about was? Oh, yeah. It's the Minority Mentor Lecture Series, and it's sponsored by the Department of Sociology and Criminology. I mean, it's a great way. I mean, we were able to um, get support, you know, bring in the Black American Studies program. I mean, it's a campus thing, man. Once you get past the initial challenges of thinking differently and reducing the fear, I mean, you know, you just build better better relationships between departments, better relationships on campus. Um, you know, so we start inviting outside people to come in and say, hey, here's an opportunity. And then you start seeing, you know, familiar faces and different faces and, and different disciplines in the room. And, uh, you know, you start shaking hands and next thing you know, people that wouldn't have a conversation are standing around eating cheese, eating grapes, eating crackers together and setting up a, a meeting to uh, have coffee the next week and maybe do an interdisciplinary um, research paper together. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's, it's relationships. Definitely the the birth of good science right there. Right. Right. Which I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about uh, at, on one of these uh, programs about how um, we're doing it in STEM now. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, that is a, a compelling story. Um, and uh, I'm sure that it has led to some interesting things since you finished there. So would you tell us uh, a little bit about 
what you've been doing since you finished your PhD at University of Delaware? Uh, I took a position as assistant professor at uh, uh, Delaware State University in the fall of 2012. Um, And I accepted a position with uh, uh, Delaware Space Grant. Um, And either it was late fall 2012 or the beginning of January 2013. Um, I left Delaware State in 2015 to take a position <clears throat> at Lynchburg College, now the University of Lynchburg in Lynchburg, Virginia as an assistant professor of criminology there. And then the following year, 2016, is when I started my uh, consulting firm, BCS and Associates, Inc. And I left higher ed after two years of at Lynchburg College to do my consulting firm full time. And I have been doing diversity and inclusion trainings and workshops and speeches, keynotes with law enforcement, government officials, school systems, school districts, um, uh, finance firms, investment firms, um, nonprofit organizations. Um, conversations with pastors, church leaders, um, who else? I'm missing another entity. Um, and I mean, I've been traveling to different space grant, um, states, Wisconsin, Oregon, Virginia, um, doing training, working to increase the underrepresentation of minorities in space grant and STEM. Um, I've been having some fun. Um, <laughs> I've been putting on my, my activist and scholar hat. Um, of course, I've been writing still. Um, so I've been do- I, I do have some publications. Um, so, yeah, that's just that's some of the things that I've been doing since I got the Ph.D. So you mentioned that you're that you're writing a book. Uh, do you have any idea of when we might be able to see that at our local bookseller? Um my deadline is April the thirtieth, and I'm actually oh, wow. yeah, yeah. I'm uh, they go those big, you know, dreaming big, right? Putting pressure on myself. Uh-huh. I'm a point guard. Will yeah, I didn't mean to put any additional pressure on you. I'm just excited <laughs> to see it. I um, I'm finally uh, actually getting the writing courage to turn my dissertation into a book. Um, I am very uh disappointed in myself that I have not published more on bail and all the great data that I have. Um, I have video clips. I've interviewed people um, in the system, working with the system in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, and I haven't done anything with it except for let it collect dust. And if Mm. you know, bail is a huge topic now, um, and I knew it would be. I started my company in 1999, and I've been doing research in 2006. And the bell czar, John Goldcamp, may he rest in peace, was a professor at Temple, where I actually did a job talk and was almost offered a offered a position there. And um, life comes, um, my future scholars, life comes, and uh, certain things take priority over the writing. And I, I didn't get a chance to put my my book my dissertation into a book and um so now i'm doing it so 
it's a very aggressive date, as my colleagues have told me. But um, some of it's written already in the dissertation, and it's just really, you know, sitting down, focusing in, and turning it to something um, that, you know, policymakers and uh, academics and, um, you know, also activists and nonprofit organizations that, that want to end this whole cash bail uh, system um, will be able to hopefully use um, as a guide or as a tool. So. Yeah, maybe even just concerned citizens. Yes, um, I hope so. I hope so. So, you know, that we are there. We're there. We we're there. Yeah, yeah. we're yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So you mentioned future scholars. Um. And so, I I wonder if I could ask you what led you to to your uh, exit from academia. What was the what was the the reason for that? Um, I couldn't find a home, and you know, eventually, uh, I would take my ball and go to another park, and mm. I just couldn't get along with the structures at Delaware State. Um, I couldn't get along with the deans, um, so I went to Lynchburg College and thinking the grass would be greener, and I was the only. Uh, African-American male with a Ph.D. on campus in Lynchburg, Virginia. Wow. On the whole campus? On the whole campus. On the whole campus. And, of course, I was upfront about who I was and what I was going to bring. And um, early on, um, it was good until, of course, you know, you start seeing those structures and those systems that were biased. And I began to challenge it. And the more I challenged and the more uncomfortable they got with me. And um, we did both a favor and decided that that wasn't the best place for me to be on both sides. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to have to make a decision. Um, I had a contract with the local school district. I started doing more work with Space Grant. Um, and I was beginning to feel full, you know, like I was really full mm-hmm. about being able to to have some activism and being able to do scholarship. Um, I just, I didn't get support for working with Space Grant when I was at Delaware State. I had to challenge uh, deans in two different disciplines. Um, I was very confused about what, you know, um, offering opportunity to students were. I didn't know that because I had a PhD in one discipline, I couldn't help a student (laughs) with my access to different resources. Um, I'm not really a box guy. Um, I, I don't see why if I got words or I can make a phone call, or I can write a letter of support. If they're a part of my family, why wouldn't I stand in front of that, you know, in front of that train for them to protect them? Um, but things are categorized so much and people are so conditioned to think in one way that my way of thinking was, um, you know, it was it was really causing them to pull hair out. And I could tell that the relationships were changing and there were comments being made to me about uh, when I was at Lynchburg that the dean said he was tired of defending me. And I said, um, defending is a term that is used by public defenders or private defense attorneys. And I have broken no law. Um, You don't need to defend me. I can speak for myself. 
And I said, saying that to the only African-American male on campus, I could take that a number of different ways. I don't need you to fight my battles for me. What you're doing is that you're protecting people and students that won't come have a conversation with me because they're afraid to. And you are listening to parents defending the $38,000 that you're bringing in instead of coming and having a conversation with me and finding out why that student is coming to class late, why that student is turning in half of the projects that I assigned. And I couldn't be a part of a system that was focusing on economics and not valuing education. Um, I'm grateful to my educators from uh, kindergarten all the way through the PhD program that wouldn't allow such for me. Um, I'm thankful for those messengers that said, uh, Brian Starks, this isn't good enough. Chad Starks, this isn't good enough. I'm thankful for my faculty member at Wofford that gave me the F in calculus, excuse me, that gave me the grade that I earned <laughs> in calculus. I'm, I'm grateful to Dr. The, the chemistry professor that gave me the D and said that you have a 49 average the next semester, and son, I don't think you're going to pass it. Um, there's so many life lessons to fail to failure. Um, I didn't see where that was being applied in these institutions, and um, I responded. Um, to some say, you know, didn't respond the right way, but my value systems were not going to be challenged by systemic oppression. Um, I got the degree. I left money to come get um, the letters behind my name to be in the room to challenge such ways of thinking. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how, how it ended. Um, and I was happy about it because I'm not sure if I um, alone um, would have had the ability to say it's time to step away. Uh, again, there were relationships and, you know, you can imagine what my relationships were like with my students. Um, so I did feel bad that I was leaving them knowing the structure that they were having to navigate that was going to be unjust to them. And um, no one was going to pour into them the way um, that I was fortunate to. So, I'm kind of wondering, because I, um, I know that you've touched on this throughout everything that we've talked about, but what is the most important reason that you can share with us of why we need to enhance diversity in STEM, including what, what um, we've talked about as social science as well? Brooke, are you a sports fan? No. <laughs> okay. Um, well, bear with me, right? Okay. Um, I think sports has been able to, to create an, an equitable system where you put the best players on the field to create the best team to get the mm-hmm. most productivity out of individuals and groups. Why wouldn't we want the same thing in STEM? Right, right. That's why. Absolutely. That's why. Yeah. I, want, I want to give STEM the best scientists. And we are missing mm-hmm. a great deal of the best scientists by excluding women and people of color. No doubt. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Yeah. Best scientists going to yeah. produce the best research and the best work. And it's world changing and it's life changing enough with that traditional way of thinking we want the best pool 
Um, I'm one of those people that is actually trying to talk himself out of a consulting firm. I am. Yeah. I am. So I know that, you know, what you did in graduate school was really, really impactful. And and now it's a program that's continued on um, to promote diversity. But one of the things that we're really passionate about, especially with this podcast, is we want to change the culture of STEM. So it does include diversity. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're wondering is how, what, what can we do um, as graduate students? Because, you know, we're in this interesting power dynamic where we really don't feel like we have a lot of power as graduate students. How can we make that change so we can, you know, enhance this diversity? Um, know your environment. Um, you, you, you're an anthropologist. So, you know, you know us as ethnographers, right? Like, um, our lab is society, and we have a great deal for the space that we occupy in an organic way, right? Mm -hmm. Step back from your environment and watch people and watch human behavior and listen to what they say. There's someone in your department, there's someone where a relationship can be built that you can trust with these, as our literature says, these vulnerable conversations and populations that may be willing to advocate on the behalf of what's right. It took me a few years. I had to socialize. I had to put myself in harm's way. I had to get uncomfortable to get comfortable. But you got to build a relationship with someone that is willing to be a messenger to go advocate to the people that they sit in the room with to help change their minds. I didn't have to have some of the conversations with the entire faculty. I built relationships with two faculty members and they became the messengers with their groups. Okay. Build relationships, figure out who you can trust with these conversations and allow them to go talk to like-minded people that they would have the ears, the hearts, and the spirits to, to start relaying some of what you believe, what they believe, in order to get the decision makers to come have a conversation with you. That is was the initial step to what I did. Then... I think that's really good advice because oftentimes the thought of addressing an entire department is very terrifying. Exactly. And it should be, right? Because there's um, either there's going to be hush money or there's going to be mm-hmm. even more marginalization um, against you. And right. you're there also to get the degree because we need you in the field, contributing to the literature, contributing to the field. So we, and traditionally this is what happens, right? You know, that loud person in the room will always be the antagonist. Well, it doesn't have to be loud defined in the same way. Use some of those social skills that you have to build relationships and let those voices represent your voice. Someone that has as much on the line as the other people that they're going to be having the conversations with. I felt very comfortable with that first a faculty member saying, hey, no, buddy, this isn't right. No. Mm -hmm. Did I know that he was going to send an email and invite the chair in? No, I didn't. I can't say that. 
Um, but I can right. say I know that eventually silence is betrayal. And, you know, the universe is going to speak to you. Put it out there and listen. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah, so, and then you can call me to ahead. come in as a consultant when you need me. <laughs> I, was <gonna> ask. <laughs> I was thinking that too. <laughs> I um, I mean, we're doing. I mean, I'm I'm doing it right. Like I'm bringing this. Well, I know that's hopefully will we get another another time to talk. But this there's, there's an interdisciplinary approach to this thing, right? We need to be social science and the STEM folks. You know, we're trained in certain expertise that, um, you know, graciously our STEM folks aren't trained in. So why can't we have a team? Mm-hmm. Why can't we have a team? Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's most of the best stuff gets done when you put more than one smart people on it. Yeah. Um, and people who have different perspectives. Diversity. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Diverse yeah. perspectives, you know, it's important. Yeah. It's important. So uh, it occurs to me that we've, uh, we've talked a fair amount about looking up the hierarchy and trying to convince people to make changes from the top down. But what about the bottom up? Uh, you know, if there's a, uh, an underrepresented uh, graduate student listening to this, what's something that you would say to that person about how to move forward and be successful and happy? Um. First thing I would say is you deserve to be in the room. You deserve to be on the campus. You deserve to have your name listed as a graduate or a doctoral student. Um, and that comes with having some some confidence and some affirmation. And I would like to applaud you for taking the courage um, to put yourself in this position to go after your goals and dreams and, and to become one of the best scientists. Um, I would also say... Um, Again, understanding the environment and knowing that you're going to have to go in rooms, um, social scenes, uh, offices, um, talks, lectures, where you may be the only one that has a physical representation from your identity as you do. Um, And that's going to be challenging. Um, There's no other way to put it. It's going to be challenging, um, but we need you and we need you to show up often. Um, and we need you to build relationships with people that don't look like you. You need to understand the way of thinking um, in an environment that you want to prosper in. Uh, you can't play hopscotch with it. You can't decide Monday to go, Tuesday night to go. Um, you're going to have to go to a number of these um, spaces where you feel ostracized. Um, and it's heavy. Um, I would advise you to step outside of your department and find a safe space on campus, um, be it the Black Arts Center, um, um, the Cultural Center for Black Studies. Um, Black American Studies was a place where I built relationships with faculty members that I ate dinner with, I hung out with, um, created some friendships. Um, Don't limit yourself to an educational or academic discipline. Think about it from a cultural perspective. And one thing that's important is get into the city. Um, There's always a home in the city where you go to school. Um, Go to the local restaurant. Go shoot basketball at the local gym. Um, Because it's so important 
um, to be around people that look like you. Um, another part of my story, Will, but that 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 first year in the PhD program, I yep. used to ride to Wilmington and sit at the bus station just to see black people. Did, didn't know them that didn't know it. I just used to park my truck and just watch black people get off and on the bus. And it was it was like refreshing. And it was like we do exist. And there was some honor in saying, I got you. I'm about to go back down here to Newark because I understood about the busing system and, you know, the issues with, you know, blacks getting in University of Delaware. I started understanding all that. Um, so I took pride that 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 I was the one of the chosen few to be able to have that racial identity, but also have the academic um, standards in order to be able to to be in that space and represent them. Um, I got a great deal of love from people in Wilmington whenever I said I was a PhD student at the University of Delaware. I got a number of speaking opportunities when I used to say, please come talk to my son, come talk to my daughter. Hey, boo, you know, he he a Ph.D. student at the University of Delaware, church members. I was in ShopRite (laughs) picking out some fruit and having conversations and people like you go to UD. Like you could see the surprise on their faces, but it meant so much to me because I meant hugs and the affirmation and appreciation um, that you're basically representing a group that's been marginalized. And it's going to be heavy, um, women included. It's going to be heavy, um, but we need you and it's necessary um, to be that trailblazer. So, Well, thank you. That was, uh, you know, uh, a lot of insight that I know I think is going to be valuable from my perspective going forward. And I hope yeah, also absolutely. for... Yeah, for everybody else. And yeah, so, you know, reflecting on that, that Martin Luther King quote that he mentioned was actually from a a really interesting speech by Dr. King on um, the Vietnam War, which is called Beyond Vietnam. You can find that on YouTube and I'll link it in the show notes. But um, another thing that uh, Dr. King said in that speech is, that true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It sometimes it comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And that's a terrible reading of that. <laughs> but um, the point being that uh, uh, our society will be better off if, if it doesn't produce beggars. And, you know, when we're talking about education uh, you know, and in and inclusion in fields like STEM, uh, people should not have to beg to be a part of those things. Yeah, yeah, good point. You can find us on Twitter at STEM Culture one word, or email us at STEM Culture Podcast at gmail dot com. If you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes to help more people interested in improving STEM culture find us. If you like to support us, you can find our Patreon on our website, plus show notes, articles to stimulate, and links to our YouTube channel of transcribed shows at www.stemculturepodcast.com. Find Dr. Starks on the web at brianchadstarks.com and his consulting firm at bcsandassociates.com. Until next time, don't forget to consensually hug a grad student or at least 
buy them a coffee. This wraps up the first season of STEM Culture Podcast. It's been a journey for us, and we're grateful to all of you who have come along with us on the journey. We are planning our next season over the summer, so look for STEM Culture to return in the fall of 2019. From all of us at STEM Culture Podcast, have a great summer. Yeah, so uh, uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Uh, Time's up. Gender and racial underrepresentation in STEM. It's 2019. Geez. Is that a joke? No. (laughs) No.